Hey, it's Cameron here. Are you intrigued by how technology like artificial intelligence and cloud computing are affecting geopolitics? Do you care about how governments are using these tools? If so, then I'd recommend checking out Microsoft's Public Sector Future podcast. Head over to aka.ms slash public sector future to find all the episodes or just search for public sector future wherever you get your podcasts. Hi, and welcome to Ones and Twos, FP's economics podcast. Every week we take two data points. We use them to try to explain the world. I'm Cameron Abadi, FP's deputy editor, talking from Berlin, Germany. As always, Adam Twos, FP's economics columnist and Columbia University professor is with us from New York. Hi, Adam. Hi, Cameron. So in a second, we're going to get to our news data point. But just so you all know, uh, in the second half of the show, we're going to be doing the third segment of our life cycle economics series that'll be focused on midlife, specifically on midlife crises. So stick with us for that. But first, as always, we're going to do a news data point. And that is 40. That is the approximate number of people who attended the birthday party of British Prime Minister Boris Johnson back on June 19th, 2020, in the cabinet room of 10 Downing Street in London. Boris Johnson is in the parliamentary hot seat once again as anger mounts over parties held at number 10. 12 or so conservative members of parliament submitted letters of no confidence in British Prime Minister Johnson today. I expect my leaders to shoulder the responsibility for the actions they take. Yeah, and if he's broken the law, then bye, you know, off he, off he should go. Um, because no one should be above the law. Even and it sounds like a good time. Uh, there were apparently several other parties like it around then. The problem is the Johnson's government had ordered the rest of the country into pandemic lockdown at the time. So now there's an official investigation underway into these parties, and that report has still not been published as we're taping this, but it seems like it'll probably be out by the time you're listening. The assumption here is that Boris Johnson is probably not going to survive this. Sooner or later, he's going to be forced out, maybe by his own party, maybe he'll resign, which means we can't talk about Boris in the past tense, but it does seem like an occasion to reflect on what his legacy might be. And that's relevant for us because economics might end up playing a a central role in that legacy, specifically the economics of Brexit, which Boris Johnson championed in the original referendum and then won a big majority in Parliament to execute, which he did, of course. So, you know, Brexit is just one element of a kind of rethinking of Britain's economy, uh, what it should be, how it should work, and all that. So, Adam, it's become customary to think of Boris Johnson as a kind of clownish kind of populist figure. He kind of encourages that image a little bit, but at least on an abstract level, did he have a coherent economic vision? I mean, if we're being generous, how would we describe Johnsonism, say, as an economic platform? Well, you know, clowns do always have a somewhat sinister side to them, don't they? And I think that's something that you see in a figure like Johnson. Um, I mean, his government has talked a big game about leveling up, about bringing prosperity to northern Britain, a reflection of the political constituency, which they see as core to their success. But in practice, his government has been entirely dominated by more or less pragmatic crisis fighting. And that's, I think, essentially what he will be judged by. Um, 
The main thing initially was just to get Brexit done. I mean, there had been these agonising years of going back and forth, the struggle to find an agreement that then would pass the British Parliament. That's what they rammed through. And by February 2020, just as COVID broke, um, that's what they were celebrating. Um, and then they were overwhelmed by the, the COVID epidemic. And and that's really, I think, ultimately now what dominates their agenda. And it's kind of a mixed bag, to be honest. Um, in public health terms, Britain is one of the disasters, uh, one of many disasters around the world. It's not perhaps altogether surprising given the, the importance of migrant communities in Britain and the scale of Heathrow as, a, as an airport hub. All told, the British government will end up probably having spent somewhere between 350 and $420 billion in COVID measures, which is generous by any standard um, and measures up against the largest efforts worldwide. But what's really interesting about it and somewhat ironic given the Brexit background is that what they spent quite a large amount of that money on them was a European style furlough system, a short time working system, which paid the up to 80% of the salaries and wages of workers who couldn't go to work. And so that was key really to seeing Britain through what was by any standards an absolutely horrific economic shock. The British GDP numbers are some of the worst in the world. So, the, the, so this isn't, as it were, a success in any simple sense. It's the avoidance of the worst. Britain also went through several phases of far more aggressive lockdown, shutdown than anything one really can imagine in the United States. And, and hence the scandal around Johnson's behaviour at the height of this in 2020, when people really were entirely interrupting their family lives and the Prime Minister and his clique simply didn't see fit to do so. The upside again, however, is the, you know, Britain's successful involvement in the vaccine programme, the development of the AstraZeneca vaccine. Not quite as fancy as the Moderna and the Pfizer ones, but highly effective nevertheless and rolled out very quickly. And COP26, you know, the great climate conference after all was a British show. It was held in Glasgow and people thought maybe it would be a total disaster. And it wasn't. I mean, it wasn't perhaps a blinding success either, but it wasn't a total disaster. And for all of these reasons, until the scandals broke in just wave after wave and the full messy interior of Downing Street was exposed, Johnson was looking pretty safe in the polls, right? The Labour Party was really struggling. So to get back to Brexit a bit, I mean, I wonder if we now have enough historical distance, at least, uh, you know, a few years now to figure out what Brexit really has been about, what it's really amounted to in practice. I mean, start I guess, with all the dire predictions. I, I recall, you know, after the referendum in the run-up to actually uh, executing uh, Brexit, a really pretty concerted campaign by commentators, analysts, politicians. They were all really arguing that Brexit would be an economic disaster and a, a, almost a kind of apocalypse for Britain. I, how have those predictions fared so far in practice? Were some of the fears exaggerated? Yeah, the, the project, the, the Remain campaign actually founded itself on what they knew, they, they called Project Fear. Um, it was a model that the Tories hmm. and Labour had run a couple of years previously during the Scottish independence referendum, which was also far too close for comfort. And the idea was indeed to intimidate the voters into believing that there was really one only one way to go and that... Um, voting for um, Brexit would bring on immediate catastrophe. And in Scotland, that worked. And uh, as we know, in in, in Britain, and, and specifically in England, um, in 2016, in the Brexit referendum, it didn't. Um, and it's fair to say, I think, and important to say that, that broadly speaking, 
the sort of immediate doomsaying was indeed uh, disproven by subsequent events. It was always a kind of form of blackmail, quite quite openly admitted, to be honest, hence the title Project Fear that's terrified hmm. people. Um, it's also, of course, true that there are key institutions like the Bank of England acting very proactively over the summer of 2016 to avoid the worst, because there was certainly a massive sell-off in the currency markets and the financial markets looked a little wobbly for a while. But they do, in fact, have the tools necessary, as we've seen again and again since then, to stabilize this. So the smart money has always been, and I, you know, in defense of the Remain camp, to which I, of course, am, am you know, loyal unto death, um, Hmm. The argument was always long term. It was never about it was never about the short term impact. That was always, I think, the weakest side of the argument. And there it is too early to tell because for most of the interim period, Britain effectively remained within the EU for trade and investment purposes. Um, but we are now beginning to see the impact, I think, quite clearly. I mean, the trade pattern in particular with the EU is on a very quite dramatic downward curve. And we are seeing something a little bit similar on the investment side too, where business investment has essentially plateaued since 2016 and so shows little sign of revival. So you would expect the effects of this to be visible over the coming years, indeed decades, as Britain and the EU grow apart and the efficiencies that once existed in the supply chain interconnections between the UK and Europe break down. Um, So that's, I think, where we're going to see the long run damage and, and that will be the real test. You know, I guess the pro-Brexit argument has always been, okay, there might be costs, but the Brexit will give freedom to figure out a new course for the country. Has Britain under Johnson figured out what its post-Brexit economic future is going to be? I mean, there seems to be a big gap to me between the alternatives that you're kind of alluding to. You know, on one hand, there's a country that maybe has more government involvement in the economy, maybe one that's assertively trying to rebuild a manufacturing capacity. On the other hand, you could have a country with far less regulation, maybe one that's even more reliant on risky financial services. So I don't know, has Britain figured this out? Has it picked one of these options yet? I think the short answer is no. And and the idea that it ever really would is somewhat far-fetched, right? I mean, the share of government Hmm. spending in the UK as a portion of GDP, as we just take that as one index, has varied over the last half century across the ups and downs of the 1970s and the Thatcher experiment and New Labour and now uh, austerity and now the Tory uh, Brexit project, it's varied between 35 and 45% of of British GDP. So within a not, you know, incredibly tight, but nevertheless, well-defined bound. And what that tells you is the UK is never going to be the US with a government share closer to 25 to 30%, nor, on the other hand, is it going to be France with a government share closer to 55 60%, right? It's somewhere in between there. And there's been a lot of talk about manufacturing. It can't be ruled out that you could have a kind of low-cost manufacturing renaissance in Britain. But manufacturing in the UK that did thrive before the Brexit referendum was heavily based on global and particularly European supply chains. And that's become much more difficult. As for the city, which is, as it were, the preferred candidate, as it were, for the low regulation small state business. Well, the astonishing things about the entire Brexit negotiation is that for the first time, as far as we know, in the the recorded history of British government, the city of London was not calling the shots. A few thousand fishermen were more important to the final negotiations than, you know, multi-billion dollar business um, uh, interests of the City of London. I mean, fundamentally, and it's important to say this, and I say this with a degree of 
you know, ressentiment coming from the Remain side. I mean, this was never a coherent vision of economic government. I mean, it never was. It was, you know, an affect-driven response to the EU, uh, offered in, you know, mind-bogglingly deceptive ways to a fairly ignorant electorate, encouraged by a press which is, you know, notorious throughout Europe for its the irresponsibility of its uh, its publishing standards, and by politicians who, frankly, just think of governing as something that it would be kind of fun for people like them to do, and this was kind of a project. These are not serious, heavy-hitting people, this entire clique. I mean, I'm never going to get over, I will admit, the an evening in the summer um, of the Brexit referendum um, when I was accosted at a bus stop in London by a drug guy, reasonably well-dressed, in his 60s, I'd say. No, I don't think homeless, who, you know... He wanted to know what I, you know, whether I was for or against Brexit. We were standing around waiting for a London bus. He wanted to know, and he wasn't aggressive. He just, he just wanted to know the answer to the question. And before I could answer, he went on this remarkable rant about how the English were an island nation and we were pirates and buccaneers, and it was time to set out to sea on an adventure. and And it was just completely surreal, <laughs> but it stuck with me as actually, you know, probably the best description of what the entire Brexit project's about. I know it sounds kind of incredible, but I actually think that's kind of what it boils down to. I mean, I always remark on the, the Singapore on the Thames vision. I don't know if that is also, if there is, that's equally unserious here yeah, as I mean, well, it, but uh, recreating Singapore. I mean, your immediate response is, have you ever been to Singapore? <laughs> it's like, you know, you know <laughs> zero hope of ever achieving <laughs> Singapore on Thames. Like, you know, it's 60% public housing. It's, it's vastly more sophisticated than anything that any of these people imagine. Like, this isn't a seriously worked out vision of where you could take a complicated, big, highly unequal society like Britain over the next 10 to 20 years. So I guess more generally, what is the current state of the British economy right now? I mean, is it on the leading edge in, in any ways? Is it a country that other people might look to for inspiration? Or is it more an example right now of stagnation? Yeah, I mean, there are, you shouldn't knock it. I mean, there are small sectors of very serious innovation. It's an absolute hub for life sciences. You know, genetic sequencing and all of that biotech is absolutely huge. Cambridge, where I used to live and work, is a massive investment center for Microsoft and Google, I think now, all of the big American tech companies. The universities in Britain are globally competitive. The city of London is still in the top three, four, five, you know, global financial centers by any metric at all. The city of London, as it were, the urban space is one of the major destinations for global wealth. If you're a billionaire, it's one of the best places to live. Um, it's the UK is the site, if not actually the source of one of the biggest projects in offshore wind technology. So the British have a claim to being really at the cutting edge of all of that. But I think the question you have to ask with all of this, with modern Britain today, is how much of this is really a British economic model? It's a bit like, to me, you know, like asking about whether Wimbledon is a British or an English event, right? I mean, clearly it's got the trappings. It's in London. They serve pims and strawberries and all of that. But the players are completely global. So are the big money spectators. Most of the staff serving at the event are uh, non-British migrant workers. A Brit once wins, I don't know, once every decade or so if you're lucky. And the last one that actually did was trained in Spain because that's where the coaching's good. And he's a Scot and he's really rather proud of saying so, right? So you know, if you kind of, I think of Wimbledon as quite a good model for where, for where Britain's at, it's not going to disappear but it's hardly a coherent 
it's hardly a coherent structure. And the economic numbers are grim. I mean, they are spectacularly grim. The, the most striking thing about the UK economy is that since 2008, it's basically experienced net next to zero labor productivity growth. It's absolutely astonishing. It's it's the worst decade in productivity growth for more than a century. So I guess when it comes to policy making, it sounds like you, uh, to put it mildly, are skeptical of Boris Johnson as any kind of innovator, even in terms of figuring out a, a coherent way, you know, emphasis on coherent of binding the working classes to the upper classes, uh, I guess, in some kind of new post-Thatcher uh, era for Britain. But I guess the question this raised for me is, if not Johnson, I mean, what are the other conservative economic models on offer these days anywhere in the world? I mean, you know, the other alternatives seem like they could even be more destructive or cynical somehow. Uh, you know, obviously we have Viktor Orban in Hungary as as one example, but also you know, you could also point to the Republicans in the United States uh, as having a kind of model, but uh, one that's also destructive in some ways. So, yeah, where should one look these days for a kind of conservative uh, alternative? I, d- I don't know, to be honest. I think it's a really quite fundamental question um, because there is a conservative coalition out there. But I think the question really is, you know, what could be its policy agenda? And especially if the aspiration of conservative parties is, as it were, to be parties of power and parties of government, how do they reconcile the conflicting impulses that they harness in these coalitions? The coalitions are very real and they're the creation of really deep structural change, right? The the emergence of working class Toryism in Britain, well, it's always existed all the way back to the 19th century, it depends on the particular city you're in. Birmingham, for instance, was always a city of working class Toryism. But since the 1980s, Thatcher for Thatcher, it was a it was a brand, right? There was this figure called Essex Man. You, you know, for American audiences, that's a little bit like working class dudes from New Jersey or Long Island, you know, who vote who vote uh, heavily for Trump. So close to liberal places, but themselves alienated from that liberalism. And that shift happened already in the 80s and the early 90s. And then British society, like American society, like so many others, was convulsed by a huge expansion in college education which went from being very restrictive when I was at university in Britain to being something that 40 to 50% of the population aspired to by the by the 2000s. And that totally changes electoral demographics and Labour rode in on that college-educated vote. Those are the people who voted Remain against Brexit, that cohort. But it leaves for Conservatives a really tempted option, right, which is that you go for the relatively disenfranchised, resentful working class voice on the one hand and elderly conservatives on the other. You build those together and you've got yourself a very powerful block. But the question is, you know, can you govern with it and what will its policies be? And how do you reconcile those with the interests of, in the British case, big business, which was traditionally the job of the Tory party, if you like, to discipline those interests and create an agenda. And we see the same issue in the United States, right? The incredible protectionism of Donald Trump and so on. So it's very unclear, I think, where conservatism derives a new agenda from. And there may indeed be a kind of structural conflict between electoral majority building and a coherent platform. What ties them together are kind of cultural values. But does that then enable you to conduct a policy that will suit the interests of the city of London or whatever? I don't think so. So that's really the that's really the challenge going forward. Okay, we will leave it there. Uh, you know, in some senses, it sounds like we're talking about the midlife crisis of an entire country, but we will come back 
and talk about the midlife crises the rest of us all face in our lives. So uh, yeah, stick with us. We'll be right back. Hi, this show is sponsored by Better Help. So there's something I've been meaning to get off my chest, and it has to do with uh, Little League. My son is on a uh, Little League baseball team here in Berlin, and the coach is, he's great. He's extremely devoted to the games, the practices. He also expects a lot of devotion from the parents, and I often end up feeling like I'm dropping the ball, you know, not literally, but, you know, figuratively in terms of getting my son to practice on time, making sure he's prepared for practices, etc., and uh, I've been called out a few times. No, I've been more than a few times. Uh, pretty regularly, I am called out by this coach in, 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 in the form of text messages uh, admonishing me. And I've been meaning to tell the coach that, you know, life is busy and I can't always uh, hold up my end of the bargain. And, 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 and it would be helpful if he would not be so pushy about everything. But I do not say that yet. Instead, I carry it around in my chest and this becomes a stressor. Uh, maybe you all have stressors of your own kind that you're carrying around, big or small. What we all should know is that if we keep these stressors bottled up, it can start to affect us negatively in all sorts of ways. And that is where therapy comes in. Therapy can be a safe space to get things off your chest. You can figure out uh, how to work through whatever it is that's weighing you down. And that's just skimming the surface of what therapy can do. And it isn't just for those who have experienced major trauma. It's for everyone, whether you have a baseball coach in your life you've been meaning to talk to, or another loved one. If you are thinking of starting therapy, give BetterHelp a try. It is entirely online. It is designed to be convenient, flexible, and suited to your schedule. Just fill out a brief questionnaire to get matched with a licensed therapist and switch therapists at any time for no additional charge. Visit betterhelp.com slash ones twos today to get 10% off your first month. That's betterhelp, H-E-L-P, dot com slash ones twos. Get it off your chest with BetterHelp. Welcome back. We have arrived at the next stage of our series on life cycle economics, and that stage is middle age. The data point here is 47. According to a study by the economists Danny Blanchflower and Andrew Oswald, they were drawing on data from 132 countries. 47 is the age at which the average person in the developed world is most unhappy with their lives. Is there an age on happiness, everybody? We're about to find out. A new study out of Dartmouth College has taken a closer look at middle age. And this apparently quite universal feeling of dissatisfaction uh, in the middle of middle age goes hand in hand with a cliche that I think almost all of us are familiar with, you know, the midlife crisis. And is now pinpointing the peak of middle age misery (laughs) at 47. Here, for some reason, I'm usually imagining a man who responds to this feeling of alienation or ennui or whatever you want to call it with some radical changes in their lifestyles, maybe usually expressed by some acts of conspicuous consumption. I thought we could take a closer look at the cliche and and just see how much truth there is to it. So Adam, we know there's probably, you know, an available psychological definition of a a midlife crisis. Um, But for our purposes, could we venture an economic definition of a midlife crisis? I mean, one defined, I guess, by by spending habits. Uh, 
And more basically, I mean, when, when does one become middle-aged in the first place? Yeah, I mean, if we say that middle age extends from people's 30s, say, to their late 50s, it's tempting, I think, to play economic and psychological definitions of midlife crises off against each other, right? Because I think the psychological version of the classic midlife crisis is something that hits people, perhaps predominantly men, in their 40s and 50s, and is tied up with something like angst about aging and an effort to turn back the clock sort of regain the excitement of youth. And and it's actually associated with having a bit of cash to spare, right? Kids no longer at home, so money for a sports car or the extramarital fling, and then for the absolutely gigantic expense of divorce. And then on the other hand, contrast that with the reality of early middle age, folks in their 30s, who were up against a midlife crisis of a rather different sort. You might even be tempted to call it the crisis of midlife rather than the midlife crisis because they see surging expenditure, trying to support kids perhaps, buy a home, and yet some way short of peak earnings, certainly in most white-collar jobs. And you can actually just about see this distinction if you look at uh, Bureau of Labor Statistics data for the US. So as people leave youth, their incomes go up. And they, in fact, do begin to develop some capacity to save. Their incomes are a bit higher than their expenditure. But the gap between income and expenditure for people in their late 20s, early 30s is smaller, significantly smaller than it is much later in life. And that's where the household suddenly acquires an extra body, a child, quite often. And that's where expenditure on housing suddenly surges. It increases later in life too, but by no means the same amount. So I think that's where you see that shock of midlife hitting people, whereas the full midlife crisis really opens up in this classic sense, opens up in the 40s and 50s, and that's more associated actually with a degree of choice in terms of income and expenditure that isn't there in that earlier stage. So if we were to take millennials, which is the generation, I guess, about to enter midlife, you know, with the pandemic, unaffordable housing in lots of rich countries, soaring student debt in the United States specifically, is midlife crisis, the stage of spending, is that maybe becoming increasingly out of reach entirely for this generation? Yeah, it's, I mean, it's tempting to think that it's another one of these boomer things, right? That that the whole hmm. midlife crisis concept is a historic phase. I mean, certainly if you look at GDP, the numbers are notorious, but you know the, the millennial generation has seen the smallest growth in the American economy over the course of their first three decades of life of any other cohort in American history. I mean, they've even done worse than the group who were born such that they matured into the Great Depression. I mean, so it's really staggeringly bad news. I mean, they've seen about 17% national income growth over the course of their first 30 years, the, the, the millennial generation have, compared, say, to the GI generation that served in World War II, admittedly, but then saw an absolute boom in the US economy. And so they saw 60% national income growth over the course of their, their lives. So yeah, the, the millennial generation is in an extremely tough position. And we know that this is paid out and, you know, in their household balance sheets in terms of their accumulation of assets. I mean, broadly speaking, as of 2019, according to data compiled by the Federal Reserve, the net real estate holdings of Americans in their early 30s were zero 
they had zero real estate equity compared to previous generations at that stage in their life cycle. That's really shocking. And that's an average number. So some clearly do have some, but then think about all of the people who must effectively be in negative territory. So I think it's a historically open question as to whether or not the sort of the midlife crisis of self-indulgence that is, as it were, the stereotype of that model will even be available to those cohorts. And what happens if that's not the case? Certainly in the US and you know, in the UK, which I know well, there is an increasingly powerful discourse of intergenerational, almost kind of intergenerational struggle. It's not class struggle, but intergenerational material struggle over this issue of whether or not that generation of young people can expect that life course pattern with all its ups and downs. So I guess in the meantime, for these older generations that have this luxury of a midlife crisis, what sort of specialized markets have have grown uh, to cater to these sufferers uh, of the midlife crisis? I mean, how and how big are these markets actually right now? It's kind of difficult to pin down. I, I didn't have as much luck looking for good answers to this question as I expected. I mean, especially if you type in divorce law, industry, economics, business, you, you end up just down some hellish rabbit hole. There's no, nothing there. I mean, the, the figure for the law industry as a whole in the US in terms of revenue is about $350 billion a year, I gather. So, so you've got to figure that there's billions of dollars a year in family law and divorce law settlements, right? Um, <laughs> I guess speaking most people don't think of the divorce... I, I, yeah. Well, this is the you know this is where this heads, and that's where it's economically significant, right? Because divorce is really the <laughs> this huge churn of wealth and income in American society. At the more frivolous <laughs> end, if, you know, if you look at the market for sports cars, it's staggering. Like the average age of the owner of sports cars is in their fifties. Really, um, this is true. Whatever type of car in this kind of range you look at, so I looked at like you know Mazda Miatas, and the and the median age the median age for Miata is fifty six. And it's split equally between men and women, which I thought was kind of fantastic. BMWs, on the other hand, overwhelmingly men. Uh, again, the median age in 50s. And these are households, BMW owners, 75% of them have no kids at home. I mean, whether or not a BMW is really a midlife crisis car, or more like a sort of midlife self-satisfaction car, I don't know. But it, it really is a market for those kind of cars driven by older people who are better off. On a much less frivolous note, I think the more serious talk about midlife crisis expenditure today has in fact to do not with self-indulgent spending like that, but um, to do really with caring, right? So there's a double squeeze which is being talked about as the new midlife crisis, where on the one hand, people in their 50s, the kids are no longer leaving home because the labor market for the millennials is so tough. And on the other hand, the longevity of the parental generation, those baby boomers, means that more and more Americans have caring responsibilities. So a, a staggering 40 million Americans are reckoned to have caring responsibility for people with various forms of disability over the age of 50. And 35% of that group of young Americans caring for the elderly are between the ages of 50 and 64. So themselves, you know, in the later stages of midlife. Hmm. So those are ways in which I think you know, this takes on really macroeconomic proportions because the care industry is, is gigantic as a slice of the of the economy. It's interesting to think of the spectrum of luxury goods ranging from sports cars to divorce lawyers as a, a luxury good. But I guess to zoom out a little bit, are, are there macroeconomic conditions that might 
produce a greater prevalence of midlife crises? I mean, this sort of life pattern that I guess we're referring to. Are midlife crises a kind of backlash to, to this pattern, these conf- maybe to conformist bourgeois economies with their patterns of home ownership and family formation, et cetera, that kind of general pattern? I mean, it's fascinating to think about, isn't it? I'm, a no, I'm no anthropologist, but one imagines, after all, that all societies exhibit symptoms of stress and that the process of aging poses fundamental questions that are formed in different ways in different societies. Uh, It's tempting, I think. I like your thesis that, as it were, the classic midlife crisis of the 60s, 70s and 80s, as it were, is in a sense a kind of an effort by a particular type of man to break out of the classic corporate white collar salary man. That Japanese phrase, I think, is quite telling, right? That career pattern at some point in their lives. That would make it obviously a rather specific European, American, perhaps Japanese thing, where that particular mode of career for a certain sort of man in the period after 45 became quite normative. But I think another big, I mean, we're talking macro, the really big questions here are all about demography, right, at the national and the global level. I mean, you and I, Cam, like, as we reach the end of our lives, we are going to be witnessing the cresting of the most gigantic population explosion, you know, that obviously that our species has ever witnessed. I mean, where the global population is going to be heading towards 10 billion, most likely. And that population is going to be aging progressively. So right now, the median age of people alive today is around about 30. But that's hugely differentiated. So in Niger, in, in, in Africa, the, the median age in Niger is only 15. It's extraordinary. Only half the population is older than 15. In Japan, on the other hand, this is where I connect to the midlife theme here. In Japan, the the median age is 46. So the the average Japanese person is living, as it were, these stresses of midlife. It's not by any means exceptional. I mean, it's actually the norm. So then I think the question is going forward, how we as societies adjust to this completely different balance between youth and age. And what kind of cultural patterns emerge around that? We know, of course, how age, you know, people in their 70s now think of themselves if they're fortunate enough to be in good health and have reasonable incomes as much more active members of society than they did even when I was a kid, when they were just very, very old people. It's just no longer the case. So there is a really quite fundamental shift in our understanding of the life course happening there. Oh, that's really interesting. That that One might not have a midlife crisis if one doesn't have young people around oneself to compare well, that too, to yeah. oneself too, yeah. right? I mean, if you don't, yeah, <laughs> yeah. I mean, if you're, if yeah, if it's normal to be old uh, because there aren't young yeah. people around, then then why would you have this kind of reaction to getting old? So I guess to end with a pretty simple question, but maybe a deceptively complicated one: What does the latest research tell us about whether money can buy happiness? I think it adds another dimension, right? I mean, if we think of midlife crisis as a matter of meaning, the search for meaning, the question of how you come to terms with the passing of time and your aging on the one hand, and then on the other hand, the economic stresses, then I think happiness is like a third variable here. And there are two very hotly debated topics here. One is the relationship between aging and happiness, and the other is the relationship between income and happiness. And as you were saying at the top, the the economist Danny Blanchflower has done this work, um, in part because the thesis was so controversial to demonstrate what he calls the U-curve of happiness, 
the the idea that people are happy in their youth and then slump towards a low point, which is reached at about 47 and a quarter. Um, and then, as it were, return out of that to a slightly happier state in their old age. And, and he claims in the face of criticism, it has to be said that the overwhelming evidence from dozens of countries for which he has quantitative evidence suggests that, in fact, there is this nadir of happiness in, in people's late 40s. And then on top of that, there's the controversy of income um, so, and happiness and their relationship. That There's not much doubt at a cross-sectional level. So if you compare people at any given moment in time, that those with higher incomes tend to be happier. And this is also true across countries, that countries with higher incomes tend to report higher levels of happiness. But what is also true, and this is a sort of paradoxical thing and quite pertinent to this whole issue of life cycles, is that people's happiness doesn't appear to increase over time with income. So cross-sectionally, more income, more happiness. But over time, more income doesn't translate into more happiness. And so it seems that we need to add in another variable, which is something more to do with aspirations. So if you assume that everyone has common aspirations at some basic level, then it's not difficult to understand why for higher levels of income and greater ability to satisfy those aspirations, people are happier, right? Makes sense. But what also appears to be true is that aspirations adjust and they sort of adjust proportionally to your state. So at any given moment, we know we're all looking forward and we're looking forward to a future. And at that moment, we think when we've got the sports car or the big new house or whatever, we will be better off and therefore happier. And that's true from that moment. The problem, of course, is when you get there, you've actually now come to expect the sports car and the house. And so you're in fact, your sense of happiness has not increased. And I think this might be a way of making sense of this midlife slump in the sense that that's a moment of tension. And I think that's, I think, what we mean by midlife crises, whether they're the crises of midlife or the classic midlife crisis model of sort of fear, is, is precisely this sort of disjuncture between aspiration, the real incomes that we have, and what actually does in those moments make us happy. And that's what kind of comes unglued at that in that period. And that, I think, would help us make sense of this Blanche Flower result. Okay, well, I have a few more years until I reach this uh, low point. Uh, I guess I'll try to keep my expectations in check to try to avoid too big a dip as I approach 47. But in the meantime, uh, we will leave it here and return next week for the final segment of our Life Cycle Economics series. Okay, that's it for another episode of Ones and Twos. Thanks, as always, to my co-host, Adam Twos. Listeners, as always, we like hearing your feedback. Please email us at podcasts at foreignpolicy.com or tweet us at Ones and Twos Pod. Remember, that's Twos as in Adam's name, T-O-O-Z-E. And of course, uh, remember to follow and review us uh, on your favorite podcast app. Ones and Twos is written and edited by me, Cameron Abadi, along with Adam Twos. It's produced by Laura rossbrow Tellum and Rob Sachs. Our social media manager is Claudia Tatey. The executive editor of FP Podcast is Dan Efron. Thank you very much for listening, and we will see you back in your feed next week. Hi, I'm Annalise Riles, professor of law at Northwestern University. 
I'm also an anthropologist and the host of a new podcast, Everyday Ambassador, where we give you the small tools that make big change. The idea for this show has been a long time in the making. I actually remember the exact day I started thinking about it. It was March 11th, 2011. I was in Japan conducting research on the financial markets of Tokyo. All of a sudden, I heard a loud rumbling sound and the room started shaking. Everything came crashing off the shelves. I looked out the window and I could see the skyscrapers swaying so much that they looked like they would touch. And then the sirens started going off. A tsunami was on the way. These were the harbingers of one of Japan's worst ever disasters, the meltdown of the Fukushima nuclear power plant. The Japanese government now says two reactors are in partial meltdown and four more are at risk. The meltdown completely turned Japan on its head. I saw hundreds of stunned office workers covered in dust walking down empty train tracks to get from the city to their homes in the suburbs. Electricity was out, internet, cell phones. Supplies flew off the shelves of stores. Geiger counters became an in-demand item, which is never a good thing. Living through a crisis of this magnitude was an inflection point for me. To prevent the next Fukushima or any of the other crises we face today, we'll have to work much more effectively across silos of expertise and national boundaries. And we'll need to harness the wisdom of everyone, from local fishers to nuclear physicists, on how the world really works and what happens when things go awry. Using this approach, I've gone on to spur countless innovations in global policy. And that's what this podcast is all about. Everyday Ambassador peels back the curtains of high-stakes leadership and gives everyone backstage access to the most powerful methods of diplomacy. In each episode, we'll break things down into deceptively simple moves that everyone can make to help build a more peaceful and sustainable world. Like giving a gift. You want to make it tasteful. You want to make it thoughtful. You thought about the other individual. You thought about what their likes and dislikes are. Or creating a fiction. Taking on a fictional scenario and a role outside of the one that you occupy in your day-to-day -day life allows you to think through what you would like to have done differently. Or just taking the time to have fun. Trying to see this as more so building long-term relationships that are going to be helpful uh, down the line when negotiations are a bit harder, as all negotiations are. Each week, you'll hear surprising stories which reveal the moves you can make to change the status quo, to find ways to connect and move things forward. So join me and become an everyday ambassador coming to you this spring on Apple, Spotify, or wherever you like to listen.